I've done this in an interview before and I've seen other people do it. And it is honestly the most effective thing to do in an interview mm-hmm. is when someone's asking a question, answer the question and then do this. Go into your portfolio and pull out. And by the way, evidence. <laughs> and by the way, you gotta have evidence. Yeah, exactly. I love like, honestly, I can't stop myself from smiling when people do that. That's an instant sell. That is like home run. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Blooming Crisis. I'm here again with Ikechi today. I was thinking about what might be the most practical topic for us to kick off with in the new year, uh, specifically to our audience. And the first one that immediately came to my mind was about job interviews. But before we get into this topic, I also want to reflect on the hackathon competition that we both participated in the jury. And again, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this exciting moment at my share. Definitely an honor on my end to be in it and seeing how the competition has evolved through the time. If you remember when we talked about the experiential learning episode, when I was still just a contestant. So I want to congratulate you and also my share on another successful year of running the competition and congratulations to the winning team Fortham, very well deserved and everyone else who participated in the competition. Absolutely. No, first of all, we want to thank you for participating as a judge on the jury panel. It's a circle of life, right? You started off (laughs) participating (laughs) in something like that, and then you end up on the other end and had a similar arc as well. But yeah, it was a great competition. You know, it's definitely hard to run these things virtually. So the dynamic is a little bit different, but the mission stays the same. And it's really about providing a platform for students to be able to show their wares instead of just like a formal interview, also have a different type of platform to communicate the value that they can add to an organization. And then obviously as an organization, it adds value for us because we have more information in that type of setting Mm -hmm. to evaluate someone's capability of doing the things that we need them to do once they join the team. So, you know, I think it's a win-win for everybody. It's a fun way to engage with the university community. And it's also a good way to bring other voices to how we bring talent to the, to the forefront. For example, like yourself, bringing someone from another company with a different perspective to participate in that. I think it's a good experience for everybody. And then also within Mindshare, we had judges from different opcos within mm-hmm. the WPP and ecosystem participate. So it's not just only Mindshare evaluating the students and engaging in, in this activity. And, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, definitely... Congrats to the team from Fordham. They did amazingly. Uh, Pace University came in second. Yeah, very close. Yes, very close second. So I think, you know, we're excited about this. We have ambitions to do it more often in 2022. Mm -hmm. So this has typically been an an annual competition. We think we're going to probably do it either twice a year or potentially quarterly. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, definitely. Thank you for participating. It was great to have you. And we look forward to the next one. Absolutely. My pleasure. So when you reflect on that competition, do you feel like it should be the future of job interviews? Or what do you think that we can learn from the competition for the students to know when they go for job interviews? Because in a sense, when I participated as a judge, in my mind, I was also thinking about who I wanted to hire if I had the chance to hire someone from the competition. What's your thought on that? A hundred percent. Those type of case competition slash experiential learning 
type of activities absolutely mm. should be the future of how we interview and maybe even change the word interview, how we evaluate talent or, mm. you know, how we engage with talent. It absolutely should be the future of how we do that or how we interview because that's a terminology that makes is relevant. I think when it comes to a typical interview, what tends to happen is there's this kind of discovery process where the person's learning about what the company does or, you know, learning more about the role. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you have a 30 minute interview. Part of that interview is going into the interviewer saying, okay, this is what I'm looking for. Or potentially the interviewee is asking questions about what's the culture, blah, blah, blah. And so there's time going into that. And then there's just questions and the person's responding on the spot. Yeah. And I think that while that can definitely show someone's ability to think on their feet and can definitely test someone's acumen because you're not sure what questions are coming. And so if you throw a curveball, the ability to zig and zag is definitely good. I personally don't think it's the most productive. Really? It is a method. I don't think it's the most productive method because I would prefer to equip the person who I'm interviewing or the person who I'm evaluating with my requirements ahead of time so I don't have to waste any time explaining to them what we do or what I'm looking for. And so with a case competition, you're basically telling them, these are the things that you're going to do once you join the company. And what we're doing is we're giving you the information that we would potentially give to our teams to complete a task. And then now you're coming in prepared. That is true. Right? To deliver that. (laughs) When I saw that they only knew of the case brief 24 hours in advance, I'm like, that's real life, honey. (laughs) That's exactly it. Yeah, it's very similar to what we usually do in our full-time job, right? I mean, in our industry, I know that it's not uncommon. I don't want to say that it should be best practice, but it's definitely not uncommon. And I want to actually understand from your perspective, what was the thing that you paid attention the most to when you evaluate students in their performance at the case competition? Because for me... I am interested in their, obviously, technical skills, but also how they tell the story when they present it, but also how they, to your point earlier, how they responded to the questions that they were not prepared to receive. Because I feel like that tells a lot about someone's capability of thinking on their feet, but at the same time, that's also real life, right? In life, you're not prepared to know what's coming next and even in clients' meeting, you don't know what the clients are going to ask. You kind of have some sort of preparation for it, but sometimes the clients can ask you something that you never heard of. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what you're most interested in in a candidate. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And kind of even just like before I answer that, you know, kind of thinking to your point around why I think that format is really good, it's because of what type of information or what type of interaction is happening. So for example, as I mentioned before, the preparation piece is key because that is the same as the real world. It's not common practice that every day you're showing up to work and you're getting thrown curveballs. In general, you, you get some time to prepare. You get some time to put your information together because that gives you a better quality product. And so for example, going back to why I think case competitions are better than an interview is you're getting a better quality estimation of the person's skill set. But then to answer your question, what am I looking for? Well, because we gave them time for preparation, one, I am less interested in somebody coming in and just talking about what they did, but I'm interested in them connecting it to the outcomes that 
I requested as part of the case. So mm -hmm. showing me, oh, we built this model and we took the data and we made these charts is part of it. But I'm more interested in them telling a story around the impact that analysis and the insights that they've generated from the analysis, how that impacts the KPIs that I asked them to evaluate. So for example, in the case, we asked them to, to say whether we can hit a certain number of sales. We asked them to present a media plan and tell us why they chose that media plan, because these are the things that our clients are asking us. And these are the things that we're going to need them to do once they're analysts in our organization. Yeah. And so I'm more interested in, like you said, in the storytelling aspect and the ability to demonstrate how they did what they did, but to focus more on linking those insights to the outcomes or to actions that they're recommending. And that's particularly why I do think that that form is way better than an interview. Mm -hmm. It's something that, to your point, in the real world, you will get curveballs. Well, the curveballs come in the questions. And so they present their work, they do it in an organized way, and then we can throw curveballs. But the curveballs we're throwing are on top of a very quality presentation that just happened. Not like an interview where you're throwing curveballs, like almost cold. The interview starts and you're like, oh, well, what do you think about this? Or how do you perform this? Versus like a situational type of question where it's like, okay, well, you said this or you approached it this way. Can you explain that more? Or could you tell me if you were to do it differently? I just think it's a better quality conversation. It's a better quality interaction, which is all around. Yeah. And I think that to your point about preparation, that should be best practice in everything that we do. Not only that it's going to help us be more prepared to go into job interviews, but also I think that shows respect, right, to mm -hmm. the people that we are going to have the conversation with or presenting to or even interviewing. Because for me, when I was invited to be as a judge, I even asked you, how can I be prepared to be a judge? Because I do want to also be prepared coming into the competition, even though I didn't compete with other students. But the thing is, in any scenario, I think it shows respect to everyone else that you take it seriously. And you prepare yourself to also be present with the moment that you're entering because that's how you can get the most out of your experience. Absolutely. Not only for the interviewee, but also for the interviewers, right? Yes. I love the word you used, respect, because, you know, you always hear a lot of people talking about how to nail a job interview. I would love to hear people saying, how can I be a better interviewer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear about that as often, just to be very honest. Yeah. And that respect when it comes to, yes, for the interviewee, I think the stakes are different because they're looking for a job yeah. and that involves money to take care of their family and themselves, whatever. But for the interviewer, you know, you're trying to fill a position, you know, you're trying to fill a role, which is going to add value for your company. So there's stakes on both sides. And I think that sometimes when people approach these conversations, they tend to think that the interviewer is in a higher pedestal, if that makes sense, versus mm -hmm. it being just a rational conversation about, does this fit? Because for the interviewee, you should always be evaluating the company that you're interviewing for. And this is not a new term. Like this is, it's almost cliche to say it, but it's something that we need to remind people because when you're going to an interview, you should be thinking about the type of questions they're asking. If you're going to interview and they're just throwing curveballs, asking you how many you know, tennis balls can you fit in an elevator to test your deductive reasoning, it's like, are you actually serious or are you going to actually ask me about the actual role, the actual things that I'm doing versus this almost like hazing? <laughs> yeah. I've been an interviewee and seen that lack of respect when it comes to talking to someone and really trying to have a conversation about the job. 
And so that I push my teams to really interview with purpose. Going back to our intentionality, intentionality that you see, I always pivot. It's like intentionality is always a hard left or a hard right somewhere in the talk track. But yeah. it's the truth. That intentionality around, for example, the case competition, we're very intentional about the information we sent to them ahead of time. And we're very intentional on in the way we ask those questions because to your point, when you're asking us how are we evaluating the students, it's built into the way that was constructed. Yeah. And also from a standardization standpoint and quality control standpoint, if we did that in a more scalable fashion, I think that it shortens the cycle for evaluating talent because now you can evaluate talent, more people in a shorter period of time, you get more information and you also don't have different interviewers approaching it in vastly different ways because you're always going to have different interviewers with different approaches. And so if you do it this way, you can almost intentionally construct an efficient question and answer feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And you can do it at scale faster than an interviewer. Because two-way interview, yes, you could have three interviewers and one person. But I mean, I don't know if, any, if you've ever been to a group interview, but it's a huge dumpster fire. Right? <laughs> I hope that people stop doing that because it's really, for lack of a better term, it's really stupid. Why do you think so? Because the, rea <laughs> the reality is if you're trying to evaluate someone and you're trying to be objective about the answers that they're giving you. I mean, they're sitting next to other people giving the same answers. So people in real time are just like changing their answers and potentially, oh, that person answered it better. I'm just going to say what that person said. Yeah. Versus with a case competition, they already prepared their talk track. So there is some room for them to course correct in real time. But for the most part, they're coming in with their actual answer. And because the whole concept of a group interview, in my opinion, this is, again, my opinion, I think that it was constructed because people were like, can we just do this faster? Can we do like four interviewees at, all at once and just do it better? But it's like the format is the problem, not the scale. The idea makes sense, right? Can we interview more people in one go? Doing it using the common question answer interview approach is flawed. Doing it using like a case competition format where people are coming in and They've already gotten the questions ahead of time and gotten a chance to prepare. That mechanism is more conducive for a group evaluation. Yeah, I love how you tie everything back to intentionality. And honestly, I was impressed to see how fast we can identify the talents just within that four-hour window that the competition ran. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I love how you tie everything back to intentionality because I didn't share this with you, actually. But before the competition, I was very clear to myself. I even outlined what I think would be meet expectation and exceed expectation for each of the criteria that I would be interested in as a judge to see from the contestant or the teams that participated. So when I came into the competition as a judge, I know what exactly I'm looking for to peel off the layers from the teams to see who actually stands out in what criteria that I would be interested in looking at. So having that intention with you, whether you are the interviewee or the interviewer, when coming into the interviews is going to help both sides be able to, first of all, help us identify talents that are actually suitable for the role, but also for the interviewees to see what else that they may not even know about themselves. Because I think that the ability to tackle something that you don't have the answer for is a skill. Yeah. How to say, I don't know, 
in a different language is also a skill. And that was something that I was particularly interested in when I asked my questions in the uh, competition. I mean, one of the biggest things that we're looking at is not just the presentation, but how they answer questions. Yeah. Because there's a unspoken reality of the case competition where we've only given them certain pieces of information and then they may add some creativity around it. So some of the questions we may ask could be curveballs. Mm-hmm. But the ability to speak more broadly about how they would approach it and to your point say, okay, I didn't have data to inform this, but if I had this type of data, here's how I would use that data. And potentially if the data suggested X, Y, and Z, this is what I would do on top of that. You know, this is the action I would take. And it's like, that's a smart, that's a really interesting way to test someone's acumen of a topic. Yeah. Their ability to say, I don't know, but if, and then paint a picture oh, this is who I want. They clearly know what they're talking about. Right. There's just so much there that is so meaty, right? It's so rich in information. And it's also rich in terms of the experience. Like we've talked about this before, you know, your experience competing in a case competition, you learned so much. Oh, absolutely. You left that experience with so much. So in the context of job interviews, whether or not you're picked for the job or you win the case competition, you're learning, experiential learning. It's a practical application of relevant tests or relevant things Mm -hmm. versus an interview where, you know, you're throwing out questions and I'm sure you've done a lot of interviewed people yourself and you ask a question and the person will not answer the question correctly. And then you ask the question in a different way and they still don't answer it correctly. And then they ask it a different way and you've just wasted all that time versus Mm -hmm. with, you know, a case, you're very clearly stating what you want them to do. And let's say even if someone comes and answers the case in a way that wasn't exactly what you're asking, there's still other elements that you can evaluate and it's a shorter cycle. Yeah. You're giving them time to prepare because, for example, in real time, you may not understand the question, but if you're given a chance to prepare, you'll think about it and you may approach it one way. And then in the process of answering it, you're like, oh, you know what? I don't think they were asking this. They're actually asking that. Oh, and then you fix it. Right. Yeah. And so I think you touched on a really key important point. It's like that respect for the other person's time, the interviewee's time is key. Mm-hmm. And the way you show that respect is the intentionality with which you construct your process so that way it's more efficient on both ends. And, you know, let's address the elephant in the room, right? The great resignation. Yeah. I hate that terminology because it assumes that people are just resigning and like staying at home when we all know that's not the case. There was a study that just came out recently that said a lot of the people who left the job force were actually people retiring. That's a big factor in the great resignation, and I'm using quotation marks. But for the rest of them, they're leaving their current jobs and going to other jobs. Mm -hmm. Or starting something themselves. Or starting their own business. That's also a factor too. So technically, that's they're still engaged in the economy, right? So a lot of recruiters and talent acquisition and HR departments are bombarded. And so a way that some of them are solving for it is, oh, just do more interviews. Just interview more people. And, you know, anyone who's familiar with the theory of constraints is if you have a bottleneck and then you just (laughs) increase the units of the same bottleneck, you're not really solving the problem. And an interview is a huge bottleneck in evaluating talent. It is not an efficient method for evaluating talent. I mean, it just isn't. And what I'm saying could actually come off as very radical to some people because they'd be like, what are you talking about? But just think about it, right? Think about the process of an interviewer, of our interview. Let's say we work for a company, you have two recruiters. Those two recruiters are constrained by hours in the day. (laughs) They're constrained Mm -hmm. by their human capacity to put energy into doing interviews. And so there's a finite amount of interviews that they can perform. So if you just say do more, you're just burning them out. 
And then the incremental quality of each incremental interview is worse and worse and worse and worse. And then prior to the interview process, the screening process is also flawed because now in order to do it faster, you're extracting less information. And so each incremental screening call is worse and worse and worse and worse. And the hiring managers are saying, I'm not getting quality talent. The recruiter is saying, but I'm interviewing a lot of people. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on? Quality is over quantity, (laughs) always. Exactly. But if you take a different approach, a more intentional approach, and upfront you say, what are the outcomes that we want? We want to get qualified talent. Mm -hmm. And we also want to be able to evaluate them at scale. Okay, well... Don't do interviews. Do what we talked about. Do the case competition approach. Do an experiential event-based interviewing approach where you can put a lot of effort into constructing. Like you said, you know, upfront, you already evaluated what you're looking for and all that type of stuff. Do that one time and then publicize it. Send the information out. People prepare. They come in and you evaluate them all at scale. Mm-hmm. And so in a previous approach where let's say you can do five or six interviews in a day, imagine if you did three or four case competition meetings in a day, each having five or maybe eight people in each. Automatically, you've increased your scale, you've increased the quality, you'll get more qualified people that way, just by definition of the law of averages, right? (laughs) You're more likely to have better outcomes because you have more things that you're evaluating. And because, and you've increased the quality because you're providing them with information ahead of time. So they're coming in with more quality. So even some of those candidates who you would say are not quality, Potentially, the interview process makes them not perform well because the questions may not be clear or they may be right. nervous. But then when you're prepared, I'm not getting the best out of them. you're not getting the best out of even a qualified candidate. Exactly. So, you know, I can talk about this for hours because, <laughs> as you well know, this is a topic that I've done a lot of research on. And, yeah. you know, I'm working with folks on a startup in this space to solve for this problem. And we're making some progress. And I'm, I think... In a couple of weeks, we'll have more progress to report and we can talk about that more. Maybe we should have one episode just to talk about that specifically. Yeah. But yeah, this is a big issue. You know, I think coming back to the point of intentionality, I think that all of us want to be to do something impactful in our environment for our community. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more that people are in a provocative way, challenging the status quo and norms and mm-hmm. potentially antiquated methods is the way that we build a better world, a more intelligent tomorrow. Yeah. Just saying, oh, we've always done it this way is the enemy of progress. And so I think that that's where when we even think about the interview process, and I know we're going to talk about how to nail a job interview, we also know that that's the way the world works today. So within the confines of our actual environment, let's talk about how we do that. But is there a better way? It's like those infomercials when they, you know, they're like, are you struggling with this? But there must be a better way. And then they tell you how there is a better way. Yeah. There is a better way. And that's what we're talking about in terms of the case competition that we just did. I mean, we how many students do we have? We had, I believe, 14. So about 16 students that we evaluated mm-hmm. a- approximately. From that process, I saw at least three or four, maybe five people that I think would be qualified candidates. We would not have been able to achieve that with interviewing them each individually in the same period of time. Not possible. I agree. I think that's important to also make sure the students understand that even if they did this all together, they stand out individually as well, not just as a team. But I know that there were some students that really impressed me. So I think it's important for them to also acknowledge that teamwork is one thing, but also how you stand out individually while still being a team player is also something that interviewers looking for. And I'm glad that you addressed the great presentation because that's actually my next question for you, knowing that 
a lot of students during this time are very nervous about their future career because of the pandemic and everything pretty much going virtual. And a lot of students are struggling finding a job right now. Why do you think that there's this gap when companies are desperate to hire more talents and students are always looking for jobs? Why do we have this huge gap right now? And what can we do? Is there a way that we can solve this? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a million dollar question that uh, <laughs> if someone answers that, you know, they can they can make a fortune. <laughs> I actually don't think the answer is that complicated. Again, my opinion, different companies have different experiences. I would argue that a lot of folks are having a hard time hiring talent because they don't have an efficient process for finding and evaluating talent at scale. They just don't. And that is also because of us relying on antiquated methods to do that. Basically everything I just said, right? So When you mentioned, well, all the companies are looking for talent, and then you have all these amazing people looking for jobs. Why aren't they? Well, that's because there's a bottleneck there. It's like, think about it like an hourglass, right? There's a ton of sand on the top, but there's a teeny little passageway for that sand to come through. Mm -hmm. And so you'd be like, but there's so much sand. Well, there's a bottleneck in the process, and it's the interviewing process. It is not inefficient. When I say interviewing, I probably even say the screening and interviewing Mm -hmm. process is broken. And it's not useful. It was fine when maybe you had one or two jobs that you had to hire for and it wasn't that serious and you just sort of got it done over a certain period of time versus today with the way our economy works, it moves fast. So there's always new jobs opening, especially for certain types of companies, like for example, an agency like mine, you know, you win a new client. Now you have all of a sudden had to fill 10 roles all at once. So if you think about that, you just dumped 10 jobs on a talent acquisition specialist and they already had 10 jobs that they were filling for guess what? The bottleneck just got worse, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And so I do think that there needs to be, one, a change of the process, and that's the issue. The second thing is I also think that people like to beat up on recruiters, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think that's misplaced. If you assume positive intent, the recruiters are doing their best, right? But the methods that they have, the tools that they have available to them are not always the best. I think it's incumbent on hiring managers to have better criteria and more intentional criteria which is literally everything we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. Just going and saying, oh, go find me magical unicorns. It's almost a lazy way of engaging. That's why we need to create more pipelines with the universities. You need to do more case competitions. You need to create more touch points with which to allow entry points into the recruitment process. If you just rely on the screening interview process, like interviewers, recruiters waiting for people to apply, or cold calling people that you found on LinkedIn, That's not an efficient process, again, right? Think about being a salesperson. Let's use this analogy. I'm selling fiber optic cables. I'm selling like Verizon, right? I'm selling internet. Is it efficient for me to go into the yellow pages? Remember the yellow pages from back in the day? Yeah. (laughs) Is it efficient for me to go and call each house? Or is it efficient for me to make a website and advertise? And so then I bring qualified leads, people looking for that service, and they can go and apply, and then I can have a list of folks who are qualified leads and then call those people. Mm-hmm. Every salesperson would be like, yeah, that's the modern way to approach sales. Or you have these lists where people either provide their information or you have methods for extracting information to say, okay, this person likely will be qualified. So this is where ad tech and martech technology allows people to do that. And there's ways you can solve that with tech, but it's also just really about fishing where the fish live. And that's the issue. Right. And so I think that as hiring managers and as organizations, we need to build that intentionally into the way we construct our companies and go about this. And you'll get better results because to your point, every what May, 
there's thousands of people graduating yeah. and a large percentage of them are good enough to do the job. And so if you take the passive approach and wait for them to apply, mm-hmm. some of them don't even know your company exists. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Group M existed until like my last year in grad school. I knew of, of other, I, but I didn't know the company itself existed. I knew of the industry. Yeah. I've, I heard of some of the brands and individual companies part of that ecosystem, but right. as a whole company, I didn't know it existed. It's harder for me to be. Yeah. I mean, so I think that that intentional outreach is important. And I think the third thing I would mention also is also people need to remove their ego from the interviewing process. Everyone always says this, I'm looking for a rock star. I'm looking for a unicorn. It's like, but are you a unicorn? <laughs> No, and and this is not even to be insulting to people. Like, are you a unicorn or did you actually learn on the job? Do you remember that first day that you started when you knew just enough? I know that I learned on my job. (laughs) All of us did. Everybody. I had no idea what I was entering into, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, but that's like that. Think about like a normal distribution. Most people are in the middle. There's some people who are like really coming in. They're badass. They know everything. There's some people who know nothing. And then most of us are just figuring things out. And we need to be okay with that. Like, I'm that way. When I started... I knew enough to be dangerous. I knew enough to get the job, but I, I learned most of what I did on the job. And so a lot of hiring managers, they're thinking about themselves, how to make their lives easier, which is fine because obviously you want to hire someone who's useful, but they also need to be realistic and say, you know what, there's a certain percentage of I'm going to need to invest in my people to get them up to speed, to make them useful and trying to yeah. look for a unicorn and putting those standards out there. You've created another bottleneck. I love to speak in terms of like... <laughs> factory operations because it's the best analogy for how to get things done efficiently we think about the industrial revolution people were doing things in a siloed way you create a factory system boom now you can do things at scale you can do the same thing with other processes you can do the same thing with the interview process you can do the same thing with operations around talent evaluation and talent search process and i just think that it requires smarter thinking intentional thinking and then process and product and technology on yeah. top of that and which can be solved for yeah i love what you said about the goal is probably not looking for the unicorn but personally i think it's important to look for someone who has the potential to mm-hmm. evolve someone who you can mentor someone you can see that they have the ability to learn. That to me is one of the most important thing and which is why I really like the case competition idea because you can see who has this ability by observing how they handle the questions, how they approach the problem, which is also one of the reasons why I ask one of the teams like what their thought process when they approach this task, when they received it, because I think that a lot of the things we can teach the employees when they come to be part of the team, skills can be learned. But there are a lot of traits that I think that are important to see if there's a path for that person to evolve after they join the team. And that's important for interviewers to actually look for in the interview process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we do it in form of numbers, how many people are out there that are exactly what you're looking for, that have all the skills and experience, what's the percentage of people who have the potential where there may be a small gap between becoming that person, that smaller percentage, but there's way more of those people with potential. And if you're filling in those gaps, a more efficient way to find talent and get them in is to target those folks, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you want to find those people who are amazing and know everything right off the bat. But here's the kicker. There's a cost. Because the cost to acquire those people is way higher and will take a lot longer. 
because those people also demand some leverage on the marketplace, right? And so if you say, I'm going to gear my internal operations against a smaller percentage, you are knowingly raising your cost per acquisition mm-hmm. in terms of money and time. If you do the research, right? Like if you go online, it costs what? On average, $4,000 to recruit a person. Really? Yeah, that's the number. Now imagine that's on average. Now imagine in certain fields like analytics and stuff like that, that number is higher. Yeah. <laughs> that number is way higher. I have no doubt. Right? And so to your point about potential, if you think about the cost, the opportunity cost, because I always like to think in terms of numbers. If you think about that, it is better to go find the people with potential where you can bring them in, they can add incremental value, you can do that faster, and then you can fill in those small gaps. Yeah. And you also want to look for someone who's interested in develop themselves and evolve as well, right? Not just someone who already knows it all and because they would not have that passion to learn anything else. So two sides of the coin. Yeah, definitely it's two sides of the coin. I mean, I think when you think about the person who is quote unquote perfect fit, right? Already knows everything. Well, my argument would be you hire those people into more senior positions, Yeah. right? So you take more time, more thought, more money into hiring those senior positions because those senior positions are more critical to the company's success in terms of like strategy. Yeah. But then the people who amount for most of the company's output are the more junior positions. And so for those, you want to cast a wider net mm-hmm. because you're going to have to hire more of them and more frequently. With the senior positions, you want to hire very infrequently. So you put more time, get them one person, and that one person stays for like three, four years. But in terms of those junior roles, especially in an agency environment, to your point, they're learning, they're passionate. They're at that point in their career where it's a steep curve. And so they're getting a lot of information, a lot of talent. And then guess what? Another company is eyeing over the fence. Like, hey, you want to come over here instead? Mm -hmm. And so they're jumping around to different jobs. And because they're learning very fast and they're becoming incrementally more valuable very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a very restrictive approach to hiring those people and not understanding that they're going to be leaving every two years, every year and a half, you're kind of screwing yourself over almost intentionally, (laughs) (laughs) right? I mean, for me, it just makes sense. I'm very surprised when people don't tend to think that way. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. You need to take time and be intentional and actually think about the way the world actually works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point about bringing people who are passionate, yes, the people who are at that point in their career where they're looking to get to that next level. So they know that there's a gap and they're just looking for a chance. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, going back to the whole case competition thing, you see that potential And you're like, okay, that person may not be a home run, but I think they can do it. And you take that bet. And it's not even a bet. You can see they demonstrated to you right in front of you that they can do it. Yeah. But then the question becomes, okay, if you fill in certain gaps in their information, it's almost like it's a steal. It's almost like buying a stock when it's a low price. You know, you see the potential in that company. Right now it's $10. And you're like, okay, no one else is noticing this. I'm going to buy it now. And then tomorrow that stock is $60. And everyone's like, oh, my God, you're a genius. No, no, no. It's just intentionality. Yeah. Get the right information. Follow the numbers. Know what you're looking for. What's your strategy? And you can extract a ton of value from the talent acquisition process if you're just a little bit more strategic about it. <laughs> yeah. A little teeny bit. <laughs> I mean, honestly, managers have their job to help their employees evolve as well, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you cannot be lazy in that. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I try my best to say this respectfully, but... You know, someone's like, I just need the person to be perfect. And I'm like, really? Isn't it kind of your job to train them? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it's also your job to train this person. I'm pretty sure that that's your expectations. So maybe be a little bit more realistic. But again, for example, I run a large team. I understand that 
it's easier for my team if they can get someone who can come in and start and hit the ground running. But I always tell them it's an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have that role open for longer. If you have this restrictive approach, I'm not going to force you to do anything, but don't come and complain to me that you're swamped. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? You cannot come, come and complain to me that you're swamped if you have a restrictive hiring approach around finding a perfect person and then the role's open for three months, four months. You can't complain because that's your fault. However, if you have a more dynamic approach where you're like, you know what, I'm going to get somebody who's 70% there, 80% there, and then train them, you'll feel your role quicker. But in terms of your job, you've already built in that time that goes into training. And so yeah. it's Delegate not, is important. And, it is and a skill. And learn to delegate and give people a shot, man. You know, like yeah. you were all given a shot at some point. I just don't understand why people forget that once they arrive. Once they arrive, they forget when they were at that point that they were given a shot. It's very yeah. weird. So whoever's listening, if you're a hiring manager, I honestly urge you to have some compassion and have some perspective when you're doing hiring. Remember your journey. Remember when you were given that opportunity, when you went to that interview and you knew that you weren't a perfect match, but you were like, if I just wow them in this interview and I get this job, I will kill it. I can do this. And you got it and you're excited and you celebrate with your family and friends. Remember that feeling and have some empathy Mm -hmm. for the person you're interviewing as well. That's what I would urge people. I love you mentioned that. I think it's important to speak to the interviewers. If we have anyone listening right now to also have some reflection on where they were before, Mm -hmm. to have that compassion and empathy. And also that's to me is strategic thinking. It's not just emotional intelligence or having a compassion, but that's actually being smart about it. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) So... We all know that this issue is not going to be resolved in a day or two or a year. So what do you think that the students can do, though, from their perspective? This is still going to be an ongoing issue for the companies to take some time to change because it's a process. And also we are still in the middle of the pandemic with new things happening every single day. So what can the students do to stand out? or to make a good first impression, or how can they sell themselves effectively during this time? What can they do? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually recently had a conversation with one of my students. So I teach at Fordham. I'm an adjunct faculty. Um, I teach marketing analytics insights. And my last class was last week. And one of the students scheduled time with me afterwards, and she had the same question. She's like, I want to work in a certain field. So you know, I asked her, what's her target company? All that type of stuff, right? And she asked this exact same question, how do I stand out? Well, you know, going along with the theme of this podcast, it's all about intentionality. (laughs) It is true, though. I say this because this is what I did with my life and it worked. It goes to what's your strategy for interviewing? So some people take the spray and pray approach (laughs) where they basically write their resume to be as vague as possible, to be applicable to a thousand different jobs. And then they just apply to 120 jobs. And look, I think a lot of the listeners will understand what I'm saying because I've done that before too. (laughs) At some point. We've all done it, right? Yeah. And so the spray and pray approach is, you know, you're almost relying on probability, a very vague probability. And I would argue that that is not an effective method. (laughs) I know it's not an effective method. It might still work, right? But maybe not help you increase your chance of success to your point. So let's put it this way. If you go to the casino and play blackjack or craps, you could win money. It's unlikely, but you could (laughs) because the house always wins because the games are set up for you not to win. And so in terms of that approach of spray and pray, 
The reason why it doesn't work, and let's talk details of why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because mm-hmm. if you construct your resume in an intentionally vague way, guess what? The person reading that resume is going to be like, I'm not sure what this person is trying to communicate. Boom, bottom of the pile. And so now you've lowered the quality of that first interaction point of the person screening your resume. So again, going back to intentionality, you must, and this is, you know, again, everything I say is my opinion, but if someone wants to take my advice, you need to write your resume almost like you're talking to the specific person in the specific company who's going to be reading that resume. Even go as far as potentially calling out the company name itself. You know the way in the top you can write your mm-hmm. bio or like, you know, a little bit of blurb about you? You mean that's the cover letter? Well, so there's the cover letter and a lot of people don't like the cover letter. And a lot of companies will actually say don't write a cover letter. But at the top of your resume, sometimes you can just have like a little paragraph about yourself and then your skills, your education, all that other stuff. Like some people write the resumes that way. But even if you don't have that paragraph, even just the way you talk about your skill set, the way I describe what I do, let's say I want to change industries, which I don't want to, but let's say I was. If I was trying to work for a tech company, there's an angle I could use with my with what I do to communicate to a tech company. Right. If I wanted to go work in finance, there's an angle of what I do that could be relevant to a finance company. And I would write it differently. So you will weigh more to that. Exactly. You weight the copy, you weight the words to be more relevant to the specific company and role. And so if I know that in the job description, the person's emphasizing managerial skills, guess what I'm going to talk more about? I manage this many people. I do these things with my direct reports, blah, 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 blah. Do you see what I'm saying? And so mm-hmm. that makes you more relevant. And so I would urge students and otherwise, young professionals, seasoned professionals, everybody, if you're trying to go and get a job, have that intentionality to figure out first the why. Why do I want to work for this company? What am I looking for? Is it about money? Is it about fulfillment? Is it about working for companies that have a right certain social cause? Is it about working in a certain city? Figure all that stuff out before spray and pray. Mm-hmm. Spray and pray is not an effective method. I need to repeat that. If you're doing spray and pray right now, what you're doing is you're leaving yourself at the mercy of statistics. <laughs> yeah. You're leaving yourself at the mercy of uh, maybe something will happen. That's not intentional. That's not taking control of your life. That's not taking control of the situation and maximizing your impact. So that's the first thing in terms of like, how do I stand out? That is how you stand out, right? Now, there are other things that we can talk about, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and I think that it depends on what stage we are at in our journey as well, right? For example, I feel like that method would be more effective when I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was there. <laughs> I actually mm-hmm. was at the stage that I was like, you know, whatever works, works. I don't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whoever wants to hire me, I'm all for it. I think at that time, for me to have an intention about what specific company or industry I wanted to work for, it was hard. Mm. But I still had my intention to nail the interview, which I think is still important because how you craft your resume, even if it was a generic one, it's still important to be intentional about how you want your resume to stand out, right? Because you can hone in the specific achievements that you can quantify in your resume to stand out instead of just writing a long list of, here's uh, some of the things that I did. Yeah, and that's a good point, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. I've been at that point as well, like you said, where you weren't quite sure what you wanted to do You're just looking for that shot and you're just like, let me get a chance and I'll nail the interview. So what worked better for me was when that wasn't working for me, I took a hard look at my life and what I wanted to do. And that moment changed everything because, you know, you hear people say this a lot. Don't get a job, get a career. 
And sometimes people think that's a weird statement. Like, what does that mean? Isn't it kind of the same thing? No, it's not. Because you can go to a job and be earning money, and maybe it's good money, but you don't like what you do. You don't feel fulfilled. You don't feel like you have purpose. Mm -hmm. Or you can even go to another person in that same job. Maybe even getting paid less would be extremely fulfilled and happy because it's exactly what they want to do. It is an intentional career path, or maybe they just like the company, or maybe they just like the type of work. Maybe they like the people they work with, whatever that means. And so I completely empathize with people at a point in their lives, especially at the younger stage where they're not quite sure what they want to do. And I empathize with you do what you do. You work with what you got. You don't have a lot of experience. And so you just cast a wide net and see what happens. But again, everything in life has consequences. And so the consequence of that is the likelihood of you having non-productive results is just going to be higher. And you just have to be okay with that, right? Yeah. But if you're looking for productive results, an efficient approach, that's where it goes into interrogating your why. I think we talked about this in an early episode, right? Interrogate your why. Take that time. Even when you're young, inexperienced, I look back to when I was 19, 20, at the, around that time. You know, I didn't know much. I think back to myself back then. I'm like, wow, like I was just really just winging it, right? I had no idea what I was doing. Same. <laughs> but I look back at inflection points in my life where I took some time and really thought about things and very importantly, asked questions. Yeah. Right? And those were game changers for me to kind of address what you were mentioning. At this point in my career, I speak the way I do because I've tried different things and made those mistakes and those mistakes have informed my worldview. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a saying in my language, and I think in a lot of countries, they have a permutation of this saying, but it's like a wise person learns from the mistake of others, if that makes sense. Yeah, I heard it. And so I think the more that I take that approach to life, the better outcomes I get. Because self-discovery is important. Making those mistakes is important. But the method of which you make mistakes is almost built into the chances you're taking off of information you're getting from other people. Hey, try this, try that, you know, based on what you're looking for, give that a shot. And you're going to fail once, fail twice, and you might succeed the third time, or you might fail three times and realize this is not for me. But then there's some intentionality around what you're doing. And so what I would say to people is, even if you're at the point where you're like, I don't exactly know what I want to do. And it goes back to what I was telling that student who was asking me about how to do interviews and nail a job. I told her, like, please, I asked her so many questions. Why this company? Do you actually want to work in marketing or do you want to work in social media? Why social media? And then we got to the point, you know, I asked all these questions and then I stopped and I was like, all right, so tell me in 10 years from now, and sometimes I hate when people say this, but I was just like, just let's do a visioning exercise. 10 years from now, what do you want to be? And she's like, I want to be managing the marketing operations for TikTok. Mm -hmm. I'm like, listen, very specific, but that's awesome. So you may not achieve that. I was very honest with her. You may not be the manager of TikTok or whatever, but you may get to another social media company or another adjacent field, but you set yourself on that path. And so when I talked to her about different roles, I talked about roles within, for example, Mindshare and Mediacom and all these other companies where you can as an associate or a senior associate working mm -hmm. in social investment and you learn about the industry and then you learn about different elements of marketing, not just social media marketing. And so now that way you're more valuable to a broad set of people. And then you can go into analytics, you can go into strategy, and then you see how you've set yourself on a path to get to that 10-year goal. Yeah. Rather than for her to just send her resumes out and hope for the best, right? That's a very important call out, actually, yeah. because there's something to aim for instead of being aimless, right. which I think is still speaks to the intentionality that we were talking about because, to your point, your career path can change 180 degree that you never know compared to what you planned at the beginning or even if you didn't have any plan. But just having something to aim for at a certain stage of your life, that's going to help you connect all of these dots in your life together and it will create 
your own unique path that eventually will become your career path that you're building up as you go. Absolutely, yeah. If I just had to summarize, like, how do you stand out? It's really that intentional approach to mapping things out, thinking about where you actually want to be, and then targeting each incremental action you take towards that. And so, for example, one of my favorite books is called The Goal, and it's talking about a guy running a factory. But then there's all these like life lessons and lessons about management and all these other things built into that story. But one of the biggest lessons I took from that book was if you want better results, you have to establish that goal first. And then every action that you take in that context should be ruthlessly focused on achieving that goal. Because there's a lot of things that you can do that seem mm-hmm. productive, but are not productive in achieving that goal. And so the question is, are they productive? Yeah, and we definitely need to have a separate episode to talk about productivity alone. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But think about somebody looking for a job. They're going online, they're going on Indeed, they're searching for different jobs. And sometimes like, applying for different jobs takes like 20, 30, maybe an hour, right? Because they have all these forms you have to fill out. And so that person will be like, I'm working so hard. I'm applying to all these jobs. I'm doing the work. But you're wasting a lot of that effort on things that are not going to materialize or that things that are not even aligned with your actual intended outcomes. And so that's why I'll push people to say, just because you're busy, just because you're doing a lot of interviews, just because you're sending your resume out to 100,000 different places, doesn't mean that you're doing it in an effective way. So I agree. stop doing stuff, sit down, vision board, whether you have a whiteboard, whether you have a piece of paper, think about it, what do I want to do, and then focus on that. And so you may apply to 10 companies or 15 companies, but you have done each of them with such a high degree of intentionality and focus and specificity where I can't guarantee that it'll get better outcomes. But I would hypothesize, based on my very well-informed experience, that it's better than spray and pray. Yeah. My rule of thumb when I approach anything, usually, is 80% time thinking about how I want to approach the problem and 20% focusing on executing it. Mm -hmm. Because that way, you actually save a lot of time. Even if you look at other people, if they jump right into trying to solve something, They may not end up doing it effectively if you actually spend the initial time trying to create a strategy around what you're actually trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I hope that more people actually will take a step back. And that also helps with the anxiety, right? And easing some of the overwhelming feeling that everyone feels. Honestly, even if we now reapply to new jobs, I'm sure that you and I will have anxiety as well. <laughs> it's not just for the students to apply for their first full-time job. But I think that going back to being very strategic about what we do from the student's perspective, if I were a student trying to apply for jobs right now, first of all, I think naturally I'm a very optimistic person. So when I see great resignation, I think that is my opportunity to actually have more chance of getting a job. Instead of thinking that, oh, because of the pandemic, I'm unlikely to get a job. Mm -hmm. So that mindset definitely will help. But secondly, I think that because in this episode, we're already talking about the obstacle that companies are having right now in hiring talents. If I were to apply to a job right now, I would actually want to stand out by being personable about my approach. Mm So not necessarily just applying online, which I think that everyone should still be doing, but I think that creating your personal connection with the people who are looking to hire people to their team is going to help you stand out because you have that in-person connection, but also 
they can see you outside of the resume. Even what we saw with the competition, I think by showing up and signing up for something like that, that already increased your chance of being hired. So anything that you can do creatively outside of just massively applying to all kinds of job openings online, what can you do to stand out as a human being with your potential and skills that are outside of the resume that someone can see beyond everyone else doing? I think that's going to make them stand out. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's really great advice. That's fantastic advice. So there's one of the students in my class and she said that her target company is American Express. Mm. And so our question is like, how can I stand out to American Express? I'm like, okay, do you know anyone who works there? Do you know what American Express is looking for? I'm like, there's people who can help you find that out, right? Yeah. Uh, you can email the hiring managers or you can even email a more junior person and the, the role that you're trying to get, for example, and have a conversation with them. You know, what's your job like? So I like what you said about bringing things away from the virtual into the personal, even in a virtual environment. I mean, it's just that personal touch. It's that connectivity with somebody who is familiar with what you're trying to do and extract information from that person. And I think also what to what you're touching on that's really great is if you're trying to work at a certain place or you're trying to go into a certain industry, to your point, go interact with those people. Yeah. <laughs> that just makes sense, right? <laughs> so I love that advice. Going back to our mentorship episode. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Go interact. You know, back when I left undergrad. So I had a couple of different types of jobs. And for one of those jobs, at one point in time, I thought I wanted to work in finance. And so I actually worked for Standard & Poor's for a certain period of time, the reading agency. And so like, how I got that job was I went to talk to a fraternity brother who worked in the industry. And that person introduced me to this person and that person. And that's how I got the job. <laughs> and so it was mm-hmm. that intentionality where I didn't, you know, for some of the other jobs I got, I had sprayed and prayed. And I got some bites. For that mm-hmm. job, I basically didn't even barely interviewed. Now, I'm yeah. not saying that that's going to be everyone's experience. But it is a method. It is one of, right? <laughs> And for anyone who's interested in learning more about how you can also stand out when you make that personal connection, I highly recommend listening to our episode on mentorship. Absolutely. Good plug. <laughs> because we did discuss this. <laughs> yeah, we discussed that in detail. But yeah, that's great advice that you had there, right? The Making it personable, making it customized. I mean, those themes are just basically everything that we've been talking about. The customization, the personability. Those are the things that really make you stand out. Being generic. Again, this all sounds very cliche, but... It's about the intentionality and actually applied best practice that makes things remarkable. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what's the right thing to do. We all know. Generally, people have a sense. Are you well, sure? Okay, this is, <laughs> well, I mean, this is my opinion and this is my hypothesis is I think that generally most people have some sense, right? You will be surprised that I heard that some students nowadays don't know that they need to actually dress up for oh, to an, go to interview, an interview, even if it's virtual. Well, I blame tech culture for that because they see everyone, you know, wearing t-shirts and shorts. And Good so point. I think that everyone wants that and they forget the, the real world and the way the world actually works is people expect you to, to dress up. And listen, I'm kind of on two sides of the fence with that one. Just kind of like a hard pivot because you brought it up. If you're going to an interview, dress up. Like it's much better for you to be overdressed than underdressed. I just want to make that clear to everybody. Rule of thumb, yeah. <laughs> Imagine going to a cocktail party and showing up in shorts or going to like a dinner party and people are kind of business casual and you're wearing a tuxedo or a suit. You can take off the tie. You can do things to get more comfortable. You can't cover up shorts <laughs> at a yeah. cocktail party. You know, so I think that the key there is 
it goes back to the intentionality. It shows a level of respect. It shows a level of seriousness. Exactly. Now, with that being said, this is why I said I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Me personally, I don't care about that at all. Like, not <laughs> even one bit. I actually don't mm. care. I don't think the way someone dresses, for me, has any indication on their ability to perform the job. Now, with that being said, I would just say, if we're going to a client meeting, exactly. hey, just be smart because you don't know what the client's needs are. You know, like for the people that work for me, you know me. I've expressed my points on the matter to you. So you know how I feel about it. So you can dress down in the office or, you know, when we're working together. But if we're going to a client, guess what? I'm going to put a jacket on. Yeah. Even if I have a t-shirt, I'm going to throw a blazer on top of it. <laughs> so. Exactly. But I think that's why context is very important, right? Because, for example, if you're looking to hire someone to come in and most of their time will be spent doing analytics, how important is dressing up? You know, right. versus for some other professions, like sales when, or something like sales, you cannot just wear a hoodie in the interview and hope for the <laughs> yeah. best. So yeah, context no, is not, important. Not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the context is important, but also kind of finishing up that thought around. Um, I generally think that people have sense. You know, you can sense what's good and what's wrong, what's bad and what's good, and you can see how people react to certain things. I think the thing that changes it is the habits that you form the steps that you take around the best practices is what makes something remarkable. Mm -hmm. So I can sit here and say, it's better for you to have a personalized resume or you need to have a good resume. You can find a thousand people that would say that to you. You can Google it and it'll show up. But then the question is like, how? How do you do it? Well, editing your resume and doing spell check, that's one way. Mm -hmm. Don't have errors. Organizing your skills and experiences and certifications in a certain way, that's one thing. But then there's other layer of intentionality where you make it targeted. Where if there's a specific company you're working for, you're calling out certain buzzwords, you're potentially even referencing certain things that they do and like drawing parallels between that and your experiences. Obviously, to do that practically, it will require some hands-on work. So it, it will be impossible for me to say, this is exactly how you do it on this podcast. And so that's mm -hmm. why I would say I would urge you to reach out to other people, your mentors, your classmates, your professors, yeah. and come to them with this conversation and say, I want to be more intentional. I want to be more targeted. This is my target company. This is my target role. This is what I want to communicate. Help me craft that. Look, what are some things? And then that way that person actually has a better framework with which to help you right. rather than here's my resume. Help me make it better. That's not useful. Yeah. I think it's important to remind everyone that if you really want to achieve something, you also need to align your purpose with other people's mm -hmm. when they are looking for something instead of just like, this is what I need. Yes. That's not going to be effective. Another thing I want everyone to be aware of is that there's this elephant in the room that you talked about, the great resonation. Everyone wants that issue to be resolved. So if you can just make it easier for the interviewers to be able to interview you or to bring you to the team, or even if you want to take that initial first step, do it. Yeah. Don't wait for opportunities to come to you. You have to actively look for opportunities. And that actually, because I learned from myself, this is something I know very clearly for myself, is that I never think that I'm the smartest person in the room. I don't think that I'm necessarily smarter than anyone to get to where I am today. But I know that I'm always the one who's willing to work at least three times harder than anyone else. And I would never give up on myself. And that's probably the only reason why I'm actually here and at where I am today, because I just didn't give up. Mm -hmm. 
there are people who I'm sure that are way smarter than me, but their ego may be very easily bruised if they are rejected after one time, two times, three times.、Mm-hmm. I may be rejected hundreds of times, but I just never give up on that. That's a great point. That's a fantastic point. I think when you have that goal and you have that purpose, and then you also have the context, you understand that that everything that happens on that journey is is part of the journey. It's part of achieving that goal. If you're just going for something and on all the doors are just magically opening, yeah, <laughs> I would start to be worried. Like, wait, am I being led into a trap? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So anything that's worth it, it does require some struggle. It does require some work. It does require some grit. And also to your point, if you go to an interview and you barely open your mouth, they're like, "You're hired." I would start asking a lot of questions. I'm a little bit suspicious, and so to address the point you're making, the intentionality and the purpose and putting in the time. Like I said, you can work really hard and apply to a lot of places and get rejected a lot, or you can say, for example, I'm going to apply to ten places. I'm likely to get rejected by six, but if four of these companies accept me or even let me in the door, that's a win. And so that way, when you go and you get that first rejection, that second rejection, and then you get one, you're like, "All right, I'm two for one," right?、Mm-hmm. And you have that larger context of what you're trying to do. And I think it also helps to lessen the blow and the sting of rejection or the feeling of failure.、Yeah. Once you have that process, once you have that goal, and so I think these are tangible things that you can pass on to students and pass on to young professionals and pass on to pretty much everybody who is going through this process. And I, I like what you said: the great resignation is an opportunity. And so, if you're looking for a career change, if you're looking to break into the industry, take some time. Don't spray and pray because if you think about the Great Resignation and going back to what I was talking about, talent acquisition specialists, recruiters, and HR folks are swamped. And so, if you're going in there with a generic resume that's not really speaking to them, not jumping off the page, you're more likely to get tossed. All that effort you put into applying for that job, that two hours you took filling out that ridiculously long form <laughs> on LinkedIn for a specific company. Just got tossed in three seconds. <laughs> yeah, and that might still happen even if you do everything right. But my point is, wouldn't you rather maximize that interaction point? So be more intentional, be more direct, be more customized, and also before you even start doing anything, really interrogate your why. Really interrogate where you want to be because you don't. I'm extremely privileged in where I've gotten in my career and in my life, and I'm thankful for all the people that have helped me up until this point. But One of the reasons why I do feel that sense of grace and sense of happiness is I feel like I have a career, not a job.、Mm-hmm. You know that cultural thing where everyone's like, "Oh, my boss sucks," or like, you know, "How was work?" Oh, it was terrible. And it's for me, I have really bad days at work and I have really good days at work, but it's all awesome. But it's nothing personal. Building my career, yeah, exactly.、Right. And a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I mean, this is my personal opinion. My job is my life. I really don't like that term at all. <laughs> yeah, because there are a lot of context that is missing from it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My job is my life. My career is my life, and so I'm、mm-hmm. extremely personal and passionate about it. And the point I'm making here is, you're going to be spending so much time in this potential job you're looking for.、Mm-hmm. Choose wisely. Take some time. Pick wisely. Don't just take anything that comes flying in the door. Now I can say that now. Versus when I was an international student trying to get sponsored, I did spray and pray and like maximize my chances.、Mm-hmm. But honestly, only because at that point in time, my goal was about converting a job. That was my specific goal. Exactly. But once that goal was achieved, I had my H one B. Then I got my green card. At that point, now I can be a little bit more choiceful. So it goes、yeah. back to I had folks who were international students with me, who at that point in time were being like incredibly selective, and I'm like, you're missing the forest through the trees. If you want to stay in this country, you need to find just a job in your field that's relevant that you can go and get sponsored. Yeah. But you know, I'm speaking to international students as well. 
obviously a lot of the stuff that we're saying can almost be tone deaf because for them, they're thinking, I just need to find something. But even this is me speaking to my younger self, even with that goal, you can still apply some of the things that we're talking about. Absolutely. Because there were some jobs that I had that were terrible and I regret doing them. It was necessary in my journey, but if I were to do it again, I would be more targeted in the specific areas. And then if I converted, I would have been happy with any of the things that I got versus spraying and praying and landing in something you don't like. Right. And that's why I think that our target, our intention also potentially change at different stages of our journey. Because to your point, I can totally relate to when I was looking for a job when I was an international student, which is why I said that at that time, for me, anything I can get, I'm more than happy to prove that I'm worth the opportunity, I'm worth the investment, and I'm here to stay. So for me, that was the only intention that I had at the time. And I think that it's important to also add that removing your ego when you were applying for job interviews is important. To your point about the obstacle of running into rejections, because that's going to happen, right? It's likely going to happen to all of us. I don't know if there's anyone who's never experienced rejection, but I think that there's a difference among people, how they handle it. Even the fact that I have the audacity to reach out to you again after I (laughs) didn't win the competition. And now we are having this ongoing series talking about so many things that we learn in our life and open sharing with our audience and being part of the competition again. The reason why I mentioned this is because I had all the reason to shut down Mm. and think that I wasn't good enough. So there's no space for me in this industry. Mm -hmm. I had that reason at the time when I failed to think that I didn't belong here and I don't have the place here. But when you can remove your ego and think about what you gain and how you want to grow as a person, put everything in reset and renew yourself, it unlocks other doors for you that eventually it comes in full circle that you never know. Yeah, that's really great advice. Just even outside of the technical piece of it, just like the mentality that people need to have is... The reality is it's hard. Yeah, It's very hard. I've been there. You've been there where you're looking for jobs. So those people who are trying to break in, whether they're trying to stay in the country, whether they're just trying to get a job to you know, pay off their student loans, whether they have a family that they need to provide for, the job search process is incredibly taxing mentally and is also has a lot of stakes. And so there's a lot of anxiety there. Mm-hmm. And so all the things that we're talking about are about giving people more control over how they approach it which will also help your mental state and also hopefully maximize your outcomes or increase the chance of you hitting your outcomes, which obviously will also help your mental state. I think when people don't have control, when they feel like they're lost, so for example, when you're spraying, praying, you don't have control. You're, you're hoping, you're wishing, right? Rather than activating and persuading. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And I think if you're doing the latter if you're hoping and just putting your life into other people's hands completely, that's generally not a good place for most people to be. Whether even if you have an ironclad mental state or even if you're somebody who's struggling a little bit, it's not going to feel good. And so as somebody who's been in that process on both sides, you know, I think back to when I was just my early 20s and going to interviews. I remember there was this one interview I went to and it was for uh, AXA Financial Advisors. It's like, I was just going to take anything at that point, right? Not saying that AXA is a weird mm-hmm. company. I'm just saying that's not what I want to do as a career. 
And, you know, this fancy big building. I was in my suit. Everybody's in suits. You know, the receptionist like, hey, sit over here. You know, I'm nervous. And I went for the interview and I felt great. I was like, I nailed that. I'm definitely getting this job. And then you get rejected. And that was a terrible week for me because Mm -hmm. I'm staring down the barrel of, okay, I'm running out of time. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, you know, I, I, I remember what that felt like. And so I imagine some mm-hmm. of the people listening are feeling that right now or have felt that and can empathize with where I'm coming from. Now, let me tell you another part of the story of the same person, myself, where I took control of my situation. This is when I was nearing the end of grad school. I was doing case competitions. I was engaging with the industry professionals that I wanted to work in. And I secured a job way before graduation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go through any of that anxiety. I had different types of anxieties at different points. But in terms of that type, it was gone because of the intentional things I'd done from the day I walked into Pace University. For my mm-hmm. master's, I was on a very intentional, ruthlessly focused journey to get to a certain point, And I got there earlier than I thought I would. Now, you know, in terms of the how, it's everything that we've been talking about in this podcast. It's about preparation. It's about identifying your purpose. It's about like what you said earlier, shared values, building congruence Mm -hmm. with the people that you're trying to interact with. So that way it's almost, you're not selling yourself. It's just a deal. It's a no brainer. They're like, you're solving this problem. I'm like, you're giving me money. Let's make this happen. You know what I mean? And that method, I had more control over that. I was more planned. I was more intentional. I, I had less anxiety. I felt for lack of a better term, more powerful, I felt more purposeful. Yeah. I felt like I was achieving because I wasn't just hoping. I wasn't hoping I find a job. I wasn't hoping that things work out. You know, I hate when people say everything's going to work out. I'm like, no, you make it happen. Right. <laughs> that's, oh, you yeah. know, let's not even <laughs> get it twisted right now. Right. It's good for you to have hope. It's good for people to have dreams. But those people who achieve their dreams, <laughs> they're pounding the pavement. Yeah. And so that's a larger theme that you opened up and around the way people are feeling and that mental state. And I, I understand it. It's raw. It's tough. But if you want to fix it, I generally think, and this is me speaking from my life, I felt better and had better outcomes when I was putting in the work ahead of time mm-hmm. and envisioning where I was heading. And I didn't always land exactly there, but I, in some situations I did. In some situations, I completely overshot it and landed even better. In some situations, I didn't quite reach it, but I was, I was close. Yeah. And in other situations, I didn't achieve it at all. But it's fine. It was all part of the journey. I just set another plan. If I didn't achieve it, I just set another plan and another plan. I really wanted to highlight that point because when we're talking about this, it's not just about the interview. It's somebody's life at stake. Yeah. It's somebody's livelihood. It's somebody's future outlook at stake. And so all I would say is due to the enormity and the seriousness of that, have some seriousness about how you do it, right? Mm -hmm. So like you mentioned, those students who go to an interview with a t-shirt, it's like, don't come crying a year or two years from now. Oh my God, I don't have any money. I don't have a job. And you have that opportunity and you blew it. It's like the Eminem song, Lose Yourself, where it's like, you got one shot. (laughs) Do not miss a chance to blow. Like, that's it, man. You have to treat your life like a stage. You gotta maximize your chance. You gotta maximize your life like a stage. You perform. You know those people who sing on Broadway? When you're on that stage, you put everything into it. That's a larger point, seems cliche, but it really is practical. So if you're going to be applying for a job, do it the best you can. If you're going to do anything worth doing is worth doing well. If you're going to do it, do it properly. Don't half-ass it. Don't be vague. Don't spray and pray. Don't be unplanned. Put effort into it because your life is literally at stake. (laughs) And not to make it like really dramatic, but 
I mean, it is. <laughs> it really yeah. is. So before we wrap up our episode today, I do want us to call out some of the key points on what the students can do to really stand out in their job interviews, increase their chance of success. And I think that it all goes back to the definition of what it means to be outstanding. Right? You cannot mm-hmm. stand out if you are just like everyone else. So for someone who's <laughs> yeah. highly intuitive like me, I think that I. I'm very rational, but I think that a lot of the things that I rely a lot on my intuition as well. Because when I feel like this, what I'm likely to do, because I'm lazy, it tells me that maybe I shouldn't do it because everyone else would want to do it. Mm-hmm. So when you notice that this is the easiest way or the easier way that most people are going to do it, you gotta put more effort in doing a little extra. And putting more effort into being different and stand out in your own rights, because you cannot expect to be outstanding when, at the same time, you also want to be lazy and do the minimum, right? Yeah. So I guess message. that <laughs> <laughs> I guess yep. that everything that we were talking about, it all comes back to that. If you want to increase your chance of success, you have to do something that not everyone else doing, and you're the only one who can figure that thing out for yourself. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think another side of that point, you know, I like what you said. If you're doing something and other people, and you're just like everyone will do that, then that's probably a trigger to say, okay, maybe let me do something different. I would also say as well is if you're doing something last minute, that's usually an indication that it's not going to be great, <laughs> or maybe you don't want that enough. Right, right, and I honestly believe that. If you want to achieve a goal, that the work starts not that day or the day before. It maybe starts even weeks, maybe even years before. Mm-hmm. And let me explain what I mean. So somebody may be listening to this and they're about to graduate, and they're like, "I need to figure out a hack to nail job interviews." And so we can answer that question about, and we've talked about it, like how to create your resume and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. If somebody was my mentee, you know what answer I'd give them? It's already too late. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about that now, when you're graduating a week from now, it's too late. You should have been putting in that effort to do those internships to beef up your resume because right. a resume is just a piece of paper. But a resume is, you know, when I talk about this is your life, a resume is in a weird way your biography in a professional sense. It's your life on a piece of paper. It's scary. Yeah. One of my mentors said it to me that way, and it hit me like a truck, and I was like, "Oh, I get it now." And so when I talk about that intentional building, like for example, when I was in graduate school. People will ask me, "Why are you doing all this stuff, Ikechi? Can you just sit down and relax and enjoy life?" I told them, "No, no, 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 no. I can't do none of that because I need when my resume, when somebody's evaluating me or I'm telling my story, all these things are going to be part of that. That doesn't start a week before graduation. That starts a year before, two years before. So yeah. to make it more relevant to people listening to this, if they're like, okay, well, Ikechi, I have to solve for it now. What do I do? We can talk about that separately. What I would say is." Start thinking now about that next phase, and start doing those things. So that way, your resume is much more impactful for that next meeting that you have. Right. It's like what you said. Don't procrastinate. Don't do it last minute. There's no hack. There's no hack to nailing resumes. You know, like those yeah. TikTok and YouTube videos where they have a hack for everything. Generally, when I'm giving advice, I don't talk about hacks. <laughs> things that are gonna work are things that take time. 
that take effort, that take intentionality, that build, those are the things that have lasting outcomes. Mm -hmm. Anything that's easy generally doesn't last long. If something's fast, like we know that when they talk about fast money is also leaves your pocket faster. Right. <laughs> so you can sum up all the things that we've talked about in terms of how to put together your resume, how to interact in an interview setting. And I think we talked about that on a previous episode as well about, you know, in an interview, how to build up your confidence and also realize that it's a two-way exchange and that can help to lessen the anxiety. Mm -hmm. But the bigger lesson, which I like that you brought it up, is if it's the easy way, it's generally what everyone else is doing. If you think about the population and a normal distribution, most people are in the middle. But if you want to be that person that stands out, the work is done, not today, it's done years from then. Yeah. And so, for example, the best example I would give of like the students who go into finance, mm -hmm. everyone's like, why do all the finance people have jobs before graduation? Everyone's always so confused. Why? You know why? For when they're freshmen, they're reading the vault guides, they're doing internships, they do the summer internships when they're sophomores and when they're juniors. And guess what? The people that need them are plucking them from that area. So it's not that they're smarter. They're not smarter than you. Their profession just requires a certain degree of planning mm -hmm. and sort of competition that is built into the way that they do it. And so I always remember, <laughs> everyone's always like, wait, how do they all get jobs? Because they did internships. Yeah. <laughs> That's how they got the job. <laughs> I love that you use finance industry as an example because for someone who always looks at the optimistic side like myself, I think that's the opportunity for other industries that mm -hmm. don't have that infrastructure yet because that's an easy way for students to stand out, right? Super I mean, if easy. you just be more intentional than everyone else because the industry is not set up that way, that's already an easy win to me. That's a fantastic easy win. And like, with that being said, I also think that we talked about this before. If let's say you haven't done the internships and you're at this point and you're like, okay, am I screwed? The answer is no, no, no. You can salvage the situation. Like you said, other industries need to pick this up as well, but you don't even have to wait for the industry. You can just do it yourself. You can right. take those projects. Like you said, you know, make it personal. Reach out to somebody at that company and ask them, well, how do you guys do what you do? And put together your own case competition. Mm -hmm. Tell them, hey, I'm going to come back to you with, I'm going to go get some data or I'm going to go online, you know, and put together a nice little case or project yeah. and bring that to the interview with you. That's one thing I want to nail before we end. I've done this in an interview before and I've seen other people do it. And it is honestly the most effective thing to do in an interview mm -hmm. is when someone's asking a question, answer the question and then do this. Go into your portfolio and pull out, and by the way, evidence <laughs> and by the way you gotta have evidence yeah exactly i love like honestly i can't stop myself from smiling when people do that that's an instant sell that is like home run so everyone listening to this if you're going into an interview bring a bag bring a portfolio with receipts yeah. <laughs> right i'm not just saying i do this look at it let's say you have a target company Write a paper, like a small little outline of how they can solve a specific problem. Write a paper about, you know, if you're going to work in the ad industry, write a, a thing about the identity or measurement, or if you're trying to work in healthcare, talk about how you can use robots to solve a specific type of surgery method, right? I don't know, but whatever that is, that is an extremely, extremely effective tool. Because okay. what that shows is preparation, intentionality, passion, and what? Demonstrated value. Yeah. Showing is always more powerful than telling. You gotta walk the talk. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a home run to me. And I think that not only just talking about job interviews, because it is the topic of our episode today, but I think you gotta think about 
personal brand building, right? Like what will other people talk about you when you're not in the room? That's also something mm-hmm. that also going to help leverage you before you even have to sell yourself. Maybe someone else already selling you. 100%. That's like amazing advice. What people are saying about you when you're not in the room. That's powerful, right? Because I think what you want is as soon as the interview's over, they're like they're emailing the recruiter, respond to this person immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the type of reaction you want. And it goes back to what I was saying before. The seriousness with which you approach it. To be honest with you, if we want to talk about this in an analytical sense, if you think about the factors that determine success, mm-hmm. I honestly think the biggest one is intentionality and seriousness. If you go and you're showing how incredibly serious you take what you're doing, sometimes people will make fun of you. I honestly can say this. When I was in college, I used to do internships. I used to be in student government. I was doing a lot. Mm-hmm. I was doing too much, to be honest. And people used to make fun. They're like, oh, catchy, you know, you think you're better than everyone or you're just doing all this stuff. They'll be like, oh, let's just go party, whatever. You know, you're wasting your time. And then when the time came for to make that transition into the workforce, all of that stuff helped. Mm-hmm. And so that seriousness which it took my life, I think, helped my outcomes. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that I was always that way. I think that I had mentors. I had people who told me to do these things. Again, this is why I'm, mm-hmm. I'm saying, like, I'm not coming here and talking to you as like, I've got all the secrets to life. No, people told me this stuff. Like, everything I'm telling you, I've heard from somebody else or I've experienced it and I'm just recounting my experience. Mm-hmm. But the most effective thing is people told you. I remember that when a career advisor, they specifically were like, go and do internships. I was like, I'm worried about graduation. And this was early. I was that type of person. I'm worried about what I'm going to do when I graduate. Single biggest thing you can do right now is school is one thing. School is great. Your degree is great, but it's not enough. And for, as a student to hear that, you're like, oh, I thought just getting into college, I was done. I was good. Your case closed. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, man, <laughs> you got to do all this other stuff. So just another thing I would throw yeah. out there is just ask questions and get that advice. <laughs> Yeah, you have to have multi dimensions, right? I think that it's always more interesting when you can see different sides of a person rather than just a typical stereotype of someone that you feel like you can already know everything about them before you even meet that person. So I think that's definitely a very good advice. And I think that, you know, I don't know why people don't like to be serious, but I think that seriousness can also come with a smile. Right. And I think that's to me, (laughs) that is a great way to sell yourself that you have this side of you that you can be very intentional, very serious about what you are trying to achieve. But at the same time, you can be relaxed. You can Mm -hmm. bring positive energy, have a normal conversation with someone. It will be a bonus point if you can also make the interviewers laugh and laugh with you. Right. So I think that if you can find this sort of opposite traits and then combine them together, that's a great way to stand out as well because not many people will be able to have both. Mm -hmm. So we are going to end our episode today now. And speaking of being a wise person, we hope that you are able to learn something from our sharing today. Hopefully, it will help you guys achieve your goals faster as well as be able to nail job interviews or become a better interviewer. If you find this podcast episode helpful, do share with your friends and family. And yeah, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Blooming Crisis, where you can also ask any follow-up questions and I will be happy to address them. 
Thank you so much, Ikechi, for another fascinating conversation. Thank you. Everyone, have a wonderful day and good luck. Let us know if you are able to secure a job by taking some of the tips that we offer today. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>